0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted, and I'm your host, Steve Doby. This week, Blair and I welcome my friend and colleague to the show, Allison Holly. Allison works for Tech Resources, where she is currently in the process of centralizing the asset health monitoring for both fixed and mobile equipment. Allison has overcome a lot of challenges along the way, from dealing with the corporate political challenges that come with centralizing anything, as well as how to properly use machine learning and maybe where not to use machine learning, we dive into the topic of thinking about what proactive versus reactive monitoring looks like and how we can do that better. Also this week, we've teamed up with the Hazard Girl podcast, where Blair co-hosted an episode featuring Allison and Holly and they dive deep into Allison's background or learn some of the challenges that women face in industry and working in the male-dominated mining and maintenance industries. I have learned a ton listening to Allison speak on both today's episode and the one coming out in a few days. It has been an absolute pleasure to have her on the show. Before we get into the episode, a quick message from our sponsor, StarWest Petroleum, and thanks for listening. Hello everybody, this is Steve Doby here, one of your hosts of Maintenance Disrupted. If maintaining heavy equipment in BC and Alberta is part of your job, I'm excited to tell you about the fuel and lubricant supplier, Star West Petroleum. Having personally worked with Star West in a previous job, I can tell you their service is unmatched, and they are committed to saving you both money and downtime. Their service team learns your equipment and suggests ways to extend its life and overall perform better. I was in the throes of starting a new job at a large-scale mine in BC, and we wanted to improve reliability quickly. One of our top issues was hydrocarbon management, and with the support of StarWest team, we were able to reduce our cost and ultimately chart a better path forward for our hydrocarbon management. My bosses were impressed, but I really can't take the credit. StarWest Petroleum did all the legwork. StarWest is a top-tier distributor of Philips 66 Lubricants, Kendall Performance Motor Oils, Philips 66 Aviation Lubricants, Redline Synthetics, and Aspen Alkylate Fuel for Professionals. Also available from StarWest is clear and marked gasoline and diesel heating and furnace oil, but really it's their customer service that stands out. For more information, go to starwestpetroleum.ca or send me an email and I will get you in contact with the StarWest team. You'll be glad you did, and so will your equipment. Now, here's your episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and I've got Blair Frazier here, and we're chatting with Allison Hawley. Uh, Allison is from Tech Resources. She is in the process of centralizing asset health. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thank you. So what does centralizing asset help mean?
1: Yeah, so um, right now we have many sites that kind of do their own thing and how they monitor and use their real-time data and just trying to put a little bit of governance behind it, trying to make sure that we're taking the best of the best and applying that everywhere. And for us, centralization was um, the clear next step.
2: Yeah, I think that's... that's Brilliant, and and the way I had it described to me, this isn't my my words here, but um, is a lot of companies have what's called random acts of digitalization, and I think that's brilliant. I think that's what you're trying to do is avoid those, or if they're doing them, take the best of the best and bring them back to a essential location. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's that's great.
0: Now, before we move too far, I didn't get you to actually introduce yourself. So why don't you give us a brief introduction of yourself and tell us what you've done to get to this position where you're in a place where you can centralize all the asset health monitoring into into your group.
1: Yeah, so I'm a mechanical engineer by trade, and I started my career not in mining or in maintenance at all. So I started in research and um, diesel emissions and underground equipment. Uh, That wasn't quite for me as much as the work was rewarding, Uh, tried out food for a while and I made potato chips for a year, Um, also wasn't quite for me, but then I eventually circled back to maintenance, whereas um, in mining where I did most of my co-ops, and uh, it started really one site specific working on an asset health program, they had just recently gotten access to their real-time data when I started, and they kind of just handed it to me and said, I don't know, do something with it, (laughs) figure it out, and said, great, can't wait. And we, through that, found the need for new tooling, so I, worked with our IT department and a couple of key individuals there that allowed us to expand on how we did asset health compared to what had been done done historically at tech. So that new tooling really let us to go to the next step and also created a new position for me. So new software had needs new governance and new development and coordination of that development. So uh, after I had been at the one site for a couple of years, I eventually moved down into a central role where that became my full-time job. How we use our new asset health tooling for the business and rolling it out to the rest of the sites that hadn't adopted yet.
0: Oh, yeah, that's fascinating. That's uh, you, you almost kind made of your, made your own job.
1: That, <laughs> I did. It did make yeah. my own job. <laughs> you, mu- you,
2: you must get a lot of questions of how did you get into this? Um, because that, that is like for a tech person like me, like that is like you've hit the holy grail. <laughs> if you will of, of landing that career it seems fun
0: so I yeah. I also work for tech um, I I think most of our audience knows that and so I work directly with Allison and when I first started at tech about a year and a half ago and I saw what she was doing I'm like how did she land that job like your career is relatively relatively young like you got out of school a year after year after me and I'm like how is she in such an instrumental and influential role in this organization already. And it's because you managed to push yourself in there. And uh, I've I've just been fascinated by how you've been able to do that so well. And you're fantastic at your job. And so it's, (laughs) it makes a lot of sense to me, like, you're in the position you, you should be in. You know, on that kind of line, what are some of the challenges that you've had? Like, obviously, centralization of anything has its share of political Hurdles to jump through. How have you managed to navigate
1: those? Politics is the right way to frame it. So we have what, in in some capacity, has been given to me as a directive, but also something I very much believe in is to find an aspect of asset health to centralize. and from there, it it is political, and you can you can see that in the way that people respond. Of you know, almost feels very attacky. <laughs> You know, where there's people out there that are will intentionally tie to slander and poke holes, and um, in some aspects it's just staying true to the messaging of of what we are and aren't trying to do so that there is less room to put calls of, nope, we have never said that that is the plan. This is the plan. Everything we've set up until this date and to everyone. Um, broad communication so that as many people are aware as possible of what is the vision. So there's less opportunity for misinformation, um, but but politics is the right way to frame it. And that's why I feel like it probably spent a year was not actually in, um, or was very little in, moving the business forward, but just focusing on that alignment piece and getting enough buy-in to move the needle. And now that that is done, and I, I think I've gotten to that point for the most part, there will always still be those people about, that don't believe in the vision. Um, but I have enough buy-in now that I can turn back to focusing on on actually making a difference.
0: You So you've got, uh, I guess we've been calling it a minimum viable product. You have something Something that is providing value to the operations and the and the different sites already, and it's just and it's just taking off from there. And now everybody's asking, what more can we get out of this? How do we get even more value out of it? And it's testament to how good of a job you've done. Um, so let's talk about a bit of the the technology. So one of the things you and I have talked about is reactive monitoring versus proactive monitoring. What does that look like? What what is a reactive state for monitoring your assets? We all think about, hey, we're monitoring our assets, we're being proactive, but that's not really the case, is it?
1: No, and it's actually really hard, at least with the asset types that we have, and is really hard to be truly proactive. Um, what we're looking for is signs of failure, and it's just how much time can we give ourselves to to replace that component. There's very little that we do that's truly preventative. And that work has always just been reinforcing the maintenance strategy. So changing your filters, oil looks dirty, whatever it might be, but um, getting to that point where we have enough background, enough failure events that we can start to detect them sooner um, takes a long time. And it's taken years before we even thought that it was, we were ready to move into that step.
2: So I'm curious, Allison, from a, from a point now from a, a tech person um, myself is I, I've always, and I know it's called asset health, but it, it, and you do have in an industry that's very asset intensive, heavy assets, right? Um, and, and what I've seen happen with tech industries or, or, or specifically vendors driving this is this idea of asset health is driving everything. So being able to say, hey, my current asset health of this, I'll use a motor, for example, right? It's a very simple. Motor it is at 98%. I said, that's fantastic. How do you come up with that 98% Well, I'm measuring vibration? I'm like, well, what if it's an electrical failure? Vibration is not going to pick that up and you could actually be at like 20% because you're just not measuring those things. So how are you able to do that in terms of, you know, that politics, because if you have, you know, Oh, The centralized systems monitoring it, but we still had a failure they're not doing their job, but you can't you can't help environment lightning strikes things like that, so. I guess there's like two parts to that question, how are you measuring asset health or what are you delivering to. Because your end customers internal of these other plants that are bringing it to you, and how do you get past that I guess not being able to detect every failure.
1: So the. Values that we report out on because it's what people are looking for not the same ones that I'm trying to steer the team to. So the (laughs) metric that I'm measuring our success is actually our break-in percentage. So of the work that we've recommended, how many of them made it to planning and scheduling? And that might not be our long-term vision, but that no. is where I see the first step because it's not gonna change the world in a day. But if we can start to detect things farther out that we're making a difference to the break in percentage of asset health recorders, um, then we're winning, right? We're, we're moving in the right, right direction and we'll worry about what comes next when we get closer. Sorry, there was a second question. The there. second
2: question was like, how do you deal with that culture change issue? If mm-hmm. if some a piece of equipment fails that centralized asset health monitoring is is, supposed to be monitoring and you weren't able to detect it because you just didn't have the technology or or you did notify them but something didn't get done like how do you address that culture change issue
1: yeah so i think i'm lucky on that one that it was already pretty well understood um by the time that i had even started at tech uh that some failures happen and the conversation is not, why didn't you catch it? It's what are you gonna do to catch it next time? And that's where I've put the team as well is I've told them like, I never wanna see a failure mode twice and, and knowing that's not realistic, mm, but right. setting that expectation of that's the vision that we're trying to work towards is you don't need to prevent the failure mode before you even know about it. But once we do identify a new failure mode, what can we do next time? How can we identify it so we can even catch it, you know, an hour before? Then we'll work on the longer term, but um, yeah, I, I think sure. I got lucky on that one that that was already understood.
2: It, it does sound like you put together a good crawl, walk, run strategy, right? And 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 just just from my research, now I spent a little bit of time in mining. Um, I, I'd probably do better in the chip making process than I would mining, to be honest with you, um, but. Um, you know, there was a lot of hype in specific companies I think were leading the way with digitalization. And, and I think you guys do have autonomous trucks going about and things like that. And we, we did talk to, to Cody, or was it race 21? Is that was the acronym? That's the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was interesting. So I do have a question how that ties into what you're doing. Um, but there, you know, there was a lot of hype of, of what can be done in, in mining. And I don't think it ever got to, 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 to reach its potential yet. Um, so that qual walk, run strategy is you can't get from, you know, day one, Hey, we're just going to start monitoring this to, I know precisely what your remaining useful life of this asset is. Everyone wants to get there, but that's, a, I, I haven't seen, I've seen someone get close with mining trucks, um, it's about 60% accuracy of remaining useful life, but didn't didn't get quite there. Right. And you got to think about 60% good enough. Right. Like I can, I can guess 50, 50, right. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's a, that's an interesting, interesting strategy.
0: So it, it, it really sounds like you've taken, you, you've talked to the operations and, and your end users to say, hey, and, and figured out what's important to them. And then you took that, you worked on that, but on the, at the same time, you're working on, okay, what is actually gonna be important long-term? So you're kind of filling that need for them that they have today in terms of the instant gratification, we're solving problems today but you're being, a, you're able to focus on that longer term vision. You've gotten the resources to, I guess, get out of that firefighting mode that most monitoring falls into, right? Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah. I, I, I'm so, curious, Alison, <laughs> is as, when I picture a, I'll, I'll call it enterprise remote monitoring or asset health monitoring. I'm picturing like the Star Trek enterprise with these screens everywhere and you know 10 people, um, presumably in lab coats, just looking at data <laughs> everywhere <laughs> and I'm, maybe, I'm
0: <laughs> maybe we should get a picture of, uh, of, uh, your team and the mechanics that are the ones monitoring it.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what, what's, what's a day in the life of, of, of your team? Are you, are you, are you looking at squiggly lines and, and looking for anomalies? You're getting alerts coming in and then you say, Hey, at this plant here, we have an alert, go put a work order in. What's that process look like?
1: So, I've actually, I've been trying to actively fight against the idea that asset health needs to be 30 monitors and a whole <laughs> Star Trek, because that's what it has yeah. been, right? Like without yeah, the absolutely. right tools, you do, yeah. you just, you have to, you get a bunch of raw data and you figure it out. And that, that approach, just like we can do so much better. Um, and so what I'm trying to work towards is like automation is kind of a scary word, but you know, streamlining or a soft automation of, wait, you don't need to look at all the raw data coming in. Like we get billions of data points a day. It's absurd. That's not, it's, you're gonna have misses. Um, so I've been trying to get to a point where we have this like soft automation where, um, where you don't look at everything. You take what you've learned and you put it into an algorithm. An algorithm is very simple at this point. A lot of them is just, ah, temperature is above 90, bad. Let me know. And they're yeah. focused on just those events. And when we have misses, it's that anomaly detection of how do we get that into their input? So it gives them a little bit more focus of, okay, these are the things I need to look at today. These are the things that are a short-term alert that I have only a few hours and need to look at more often. And these are the ones that are, you know, maybe weekly that we might catch something. Um, So we can look at these less often. So I'm trying to split it out that way and not just having like, ah, spend six right. hours looking at trends and see if you find anything that's yeah, right. we're trying to, for to be more focused
2: <laughs> yeah. and it, and it yeah. sounds it, it sounds like um you're getting your your first pass at it is, is anomaly detection now just with ai i always think you know unsupervised learning but really it's uh what i would call traditional statistics if mm-hmm. then give me an alert yep right there's there's no Deep learning, neural nets, craziness involved. It's literally if my temperature goes the temperature is an indication of a potential failure mode. Alert me because if I alert someone else, that's not their primary role. It might not get action taken. So at least we can and take a look at that data, may get some more supporting information, create right a work order, and, and start yeah. to track the, the break-in percentage. I got that right.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so we've taken it a little bit farther where it isn't just temperatures that's where we started you know a couple of years ago and then you start to ask them the questions of like okay why wasn't this event accurate ah well because you know it's right at startup and those alarms just aren't valid so how do we remove that from the data set okay great so we filtered out startup okay now this alarm is triggering a lot under this circumstance and how do we take that out um so when we say basic alarming it is is—it is gotten to a point where it's relatively accurate and and mm-hmm and we're ready to move these into some of the like purely automated state for some of the routine ones. Um, But that progression has been much more successful when it's based in what is the asset doing, what is acceptable and mimicking what some of the onboard troubleshooting would look like versus pure statistics, pure machine learning, which has its place, we haven't had a need for it or we've had very few areas where it's been successful at least.
2: Yeah, and I think that's disappointing to hear, but I think it's accurate. Um, And I think, so you look at that, and I would call that conditional alarming, where a Mm -hmm. subject matter expert is putting conditions around that alarm. So if, you know, I'm starting up and my RPM is really high or something like that, I know I'm going to have a spike in temperature, but that's relative to the process, right? And I think that's what you've been, what I hear, you've been able to build those set of rules around those thresholds. Based on domain expertise and operations to be able to get more confidence in those alerts now i'm curious um, the the machine learning part of me wants to ask if you're getting these you know hundreds of thousands of data points i can only imagine the amount of data that's coming in so in theory you you could train a simple anomaly detection model like a gmm or xg boost or something like that to be able to learn hey during start up because I know I'm going to make these up. This probably doesn't make sense because of my, um, my pressure, my RPM, whatever. This is my normal temperature. But when that drops my, my normal temperature then drops because we're essentially doing multivariate analysis. Right. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that make sense to start doing, um, once you have confidence in these rules to, to further fine tune that and be able to use machine learning to and domain expertise to start applying those anomaly detection.
1: We will get there um and I think we're getting close where we'll start to try that path again um but what I try to remember remind people when they push for it is these assets were engineered to work under a certain condition and we should be able to calculate exactly what pressure based on temperature because they were designed to work that way so getting to a point where we're outside of those bounds is 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 unlikely so some of these like statistical where you are just doing some sort of regression those are mm-hmm. a really good fit but the effort to do those versus the effort to just do a conditional it it hasn't it hasn't presented a need we've been able to get things that are relatively accurate with the five minutes of like yeah well if i was on the field you- i would be doing this <laughs> Where did you
2: come from, Allison? Was, <laughs> <laughs> when you start this she when you're just... three, <laughs>
1: you,
2: you're, you're so right. That's something I never considered is, is the level of effort. What is that level of effort? If I can get that information and you're right, because even when I was solely in that AI business and said, where do you start with something? Or, you know, I always get the question, well, what sensors should I put where? I'm like, well, what are you trying to solve? And, and I remember I was doing a refrigeration project. And I went up to the technician, I'm like, how do you tell when this thing's going to fail? And he put his hand below the coil and above the coil. And he goes, I measure the temperature conditions. I'm like, well, there you go. Put two temperature sensors in, but then you don't need any AI. If the Delta is not X, then there's something going on. Right? Um, and I think that's a, a very applied and reasonable approach to, to what you're doing there.
0: <laughs> and I think in our industry, we, and, and like, and speaking industry as a whole, it doesn't matter whether it's mining or manufacturing, we've taken the excitement of machine learning and we've tried to apply that tool maybe a bit improperly or a bit preemptively. Um, and we haven't always taken that step back to ask, is this appropriate here? Is there something simpler? Does um, basic statistics or just a threshold alarm actually accomplish what we're looking to accomplish? And You know we've had a lot of different guests on the show and you know i'm a big fan of machine learning i think it's fascinating but um that conversation i think is getting missed in a lot of places so I don't know what you've seen, Blair. I know you you come from the AI background and you started an AI company. So maybe this is maybe this is shut up, Steve. (laughs) I fully, I fully
2: disagree with both of you.
0: I think you're absolutely
2: wrong and everything should be a no, and I think that's the the regional approach. And even I'll go back to our conversation, Steve, we had with John Sadolfos over in Greece was um, one of the issues with that, and I think it goes back to culture change when you ML is not as bad as, as as deep learning, but it depends specifically if you start to you know, outsource all of your machine learning building, you don't know how they built the model, what they built the model on and why it's making decisions it's doing. And that gets back to that explainable AI, which if, and I, I've said this over and over again, if you, if I was to go and, and you can give me all the day in the world and I can probably come up with a pretty good AI model to predict a certain failure. But if I give that and say, Hey, you need to go take this truck down and replace it. Well, why? Because this thing is telling me about, I don't know why, like what are the influencing factors and things like that? That's going to be a heck of a culture change, right? And if you can't, and if you have your own people creating their own rules with their own subject matter expertise, they're more likely to take action on that. Right. And I think that's a big cultural shift, right? I think AI is absolutely going to get its place. And Allison, when, when you're monitoring every single piece of equipment, in every facility, you know, we'll have that conversation again. And I guarantee you, you, will be using some form of, of AI at that point, but you're not just jumping in the AI bucket going, woo, I'm all in, right. Is you're taking a very strategic approach to that.
0: Well, and and maybe I should ask that question is, is that how you started? Or was there maybe a push for AI? And I'm asking this as a loaded question because I do know the answer, Um, but was Was there a different approach before?
1: Yeah, so I, I think <laughs> and every, company, a big smirk. <laughs> every company has had their push of like, well, we just, we want to do it. It's the new thing. We got to find an application and engines cost a lot of money. Let's try that. Um, and I kind of, I saw the writing on the wall for that one. I was like, I don't, I'd like to not be involved. <laughs> um, really? And, and, and that's not to say that I'm anti ML and AI and all of that, but I, from the beginning, just didn't see this approach working out, and and has some of these conversations, right? If we can get 80% accurate, but just measuring the temperature, why are we doing machine learning? Um, and and maybe if we can't do that, if we can't even get 20%, do we even have the right data, right? So I I from the beginning was skeptical of the approach that most companies right now for maintenance are taking for machine learning, um, and I see the application in a totally different area, and. And and that's where I'm excited is for the areas that are not failure detection, because I, again, effort, Um, but in the, like, how do we use our resources better? How do we, now that we have 10,000 alarms in a day, which ones do we look at, right? There is so many other applications for machine learning that are, that don't have a clear statistical or logical application.
2: Yeah, I think it is interesting. I just had a conversation um, with the CMS provider that's, in my opinion, one of the best of using AI on the CMS system. And that's what they're using it for is looking at work orders flagging things that are going to be a problem. Hey, this information is missing and and things like that to get more effective, at least on that side of things. So I think the, the opportunity obviously of, of AI is going to be everywhere. Um, it's just applying it very logically. And I think AI has to be very application specific. People are not looking for a platform or a workbench, they're looking for a very specific use case, right? Um, and I think what will happen is we'll see that AI getting applied down at the edge, down at the equipment, and then sending someone like you the insights from it, right? Yeah. To then act on.
1: Mm-hmm, totally. Like even some of one of the applications that I've been interested in trying in the future uh, is with new assets. So if we have a new asset and we haven't built the thresholds and we don't know what we're looking mm. for, just put straight anomaly detection on. If we get to the point where it's easy to deploy on the edge, just send us a flag if something changes so that we have a tool to start building those conditional alarms. So. There's applications, but
2: there is. And I like that. So I'm going to go down a wormhole here. Sorry, Steve, the next three, next three hours. So (laughs) I
0: I just sit back and enjoy my coffee.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: So I I love that principle. And, and um, so I think from an anomaly detection point is one thing to tell you this anomaly, but one of the things that are missing in my opinion is the severity of the anomaly. So it's not just an anomaly, but every, every anomaly should come with a severity and how you calculate that is a very unique and often proprietary way of getting that um, to, to the degree of which the anomaly is happening, but also the influencing variables that are causing that. So if you have hundred variables on it and my temperature is anomalous, it's 75% anomaly. And these are the top influencing variables of that multivariable set that are influencing it to start to get you some more, some more insights. Now, so you have this idea of a new asset and maybe you're not even looking at this yet, but we're getting, I know as, as you know, IOT, five years ago was the top of the hype curve where IOT is falling down and the disillusionment stayed. And now, now AI is kind of going down that. And the next one that's coming up behind is this concept of digital twin. Um, and, and, you know, I think it fits in, but there's obviously a lot of misconceptions not to say I know exactly what a digital twin is, but I can tell you what it's not, is people think once I have my data into the cloud, I have this digital twin. Like, no, you just have a data representation. There's nothing you can do with it. So I don't, You made a comment earlier about, you know, your assets are very highly engineered for purpose. Do you have first principle models of these types of assets that you can start to leverage that when you're building this asset health and things like that, some kind of statistical model or high fidelity simulation of these types of equipment?
1: Yeah, we do not on our mobile equipment. Um, Mobile equipment is too dynamic for that to be easily applied. We'll get there, but we're we're exploring that space in our fixed assets. So in our plants and in our mills, because mm-hmm. um, a pump is the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that is a great application for like a conditional alarming is going to get you in a window when there is, when you've deviated so far, um, but those kind of first principles, just like, this is exactly how it should operate. And if it deviates at all, if it deviates 1% in temperature, let us know. Because on something as simple as a pump, which operates in basically a closed environment, you should be able to detect the second something changes. And that's what we're trying to get to in the fixed assets.
2: Right, okay, That, that makes sense. So you don't have, or at least in your group, you don't have like a full high fidelity digital twin where you're simulating errors and what the impact would be to detect it.
1: Yeah, I the digital twin is one of those other ones that I am I'm I'm gonna wipe my hands of. It's I, I especially the way that it's been marketed. If you I, ask, I
2: agree, 10 by the way, I agree, I agree with you on this one.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if you ask ten companies what a digital twin is, they'll give you a different answer.
2: Absolutely, so, yep,
1: hundred percent. Some people I agree, and others I just shake my head, and that's marketing. You're not getting anything out of what they're that's selling.
2: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> As I scratch. Digital twin off my marketing flag. Right <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it I does. Hope. It markets really well because that is what's new and upcoming. And you're gonna get a few people that you could just slap a label on something you already have, call it a digital twin, and you'd sell it because it is big right now. But yeah, I, I, so. I'm I'm yep. I'm a little bit more critical and skeptical of some of the approaches. Um, but yeah, I, I for the most part I think it's a marketing label.
2: Right. And so when you're looking at this from a process point of view, you know, you know, I'll map it out on a PDF curve, right? You're trying to detect a failure at the earliest possible point. And, and, you know, a lot of people, I think fundamentally might not understand the PDF curve, the PDF curve, like there's a PDF curve for every type of failure mode, right? So multiple, an asset has hundreds of thousands of PDF curves. So you're, and and Nolan heaps define that P as a identifiable physical condition, right? That's causing that asset to, or that failure mode to start happening. So, I mean, that's great. And we started this conversation saying, you know, really about preventative or, or proactive. So are you know, you say no, never have that failure mode twice, which, um, you know, I've also heard in the AL, AL, the AI ML space, a vendor in a, in a reliability forum um, say, you know, once we have what that failure looks like, you'll never have that failure again. Right, and I, I like I just looking around. Going, Any One data point. Here? Is did anyone else that? hear? Yeah, did anyone <laughs> else hear that? Right? And everyone's like, "Oh, this is great." And I'm like, "Whoa." Um, but the whole point, I think, of of this is is you you want to detect that failure, but if it happens frequently, you you want to you know go to Bob Latino. You want to do an RCA. You want to get back in front of that to the the DDI curve and start engineering that out. So, have you gotten to that stage where you're saying? Oh my gosh, we're going to make this, uh, we keep on blowing tires on a truck. I haven't, uh, you can tell I don't know mining, right? Um, We've we got to change the tires. we got to do something, to stop driving on the road. Have you got that, you know, plan, do, check, act, that, that circle going back to eliminate failures from happening?
1: Well, so this is where I, keep, it, it, a lot of my work with Stephen comes into play is, we're not trying to solve the world, right? Asset health has its place, but asset health is not a replacement for a good maintenance strategy or a good reliability program. And while we were a support piece, I think we we're on the execution side of that. Asset health is not there to tell you why something failed all of the time, even if we have the information to support it and we'll provide it, but um, trying to stay in our lane on that perspective and and supporting the people that that is what they want to do and the reliability engineers and maintenance strategies but understanding that data alone is not an entire maintenance program
0: (laughs) right and this is where i I was just going to say this is where my and allison's world have really synergized sorry for the buzzword but um because i'm in that i'm not in the asset monitoring or an asset health space i'm in the Reliability engineering space, and I work with Allison and her team, and we take that information, or at least we're going to be doing it better in the future, um, where we can take that information and we look at our bad actors and say, okay, how are we going to solve this? Well, in the immediate, in term, we can put in monitoring to control it and respond better. Looking long term, what are we going to do? Are we going to design it out? Are we going to engineer, find a different engineered solution, or something like that? But you know it's using both of those together like they're they're both pieces of the same puzzle and, and sorry this isn't a podcast for me to talk about or we're talking to you so <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah like it's they're tied so closely together but so often they're they're left very separate um and they're not working together those teams so yeah
1: yeah and and this is something that I've started to challenge the team on like my team on as well Is if you're seeing the same thing over and over and over again, I don't want you just to keep giving yourself on a pat on the back. We need to hand those things off to the reliability team to say, Hey, we fail a fuel pump once every two weeks. Can we, you know, we're saving them. Great. But like right. maybe we need to look at these fuel pumps.
2: <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess if you guys work together and complete that circle, your goal, Allison, would be, it's never going to happen, but to detect nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right, but they, obviously it's not going to happen in the real world, but um,
0: that's like, you, you want to work yourself out of a job.
1: That's gold.
0: <laughs> if, if we want to never see the same failure mode twice, we're not going to do that by just detecting the failure mode. Right. We have to put the thought process, we have to do the RCA, and we have to find that solution or, or break that causal map for that failure mode for that not to happen again. And that's not a one person job like uh, Bob Latino again he'll say it every time like you need a you need a cross functional team that's you know your asset health guys that's your your true reliability more the purest I guess. uh, running those analyses that's the operators that's mechanics that's everybody getting into a room and saying Okay, how is this actually occurring and what can we do to either break it and or control it so.
2: Exactly and. I got to go back and, and listen to this a few times, Allison. I don't know how you come up with these these not buzzwords but words. And uh, I'll tell you what stuck with me when I asked that question about you know going back and doing the root cause analysis. And I think this is brilliant. Is you said you know stay in your lane, right? Because too often we we try to do too many things and we don't have to be good at one thing. And I think what I'm getting from that is your team and you are there for asset health. We're, we're going to give information as it comes up. This fuel pump's failing every two weeks. Stephen, go reliably engineer this out, right? Or do we have to do, but your job to stay in your lane is to detect these failures. And that's what yep. your purpose is. That's and it's
1: not that we don't support them, right? But it's understanding what is our direct accountability and what are we support for. So when we see these repeat events, you know, we still have experts that know a lot and can give the context. But at that point in time, we become support. It is not our accountability to fix them. We want to help other people solve right. those problems.
2: Fantastic. So, we, washing our hands of it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Your problem now. Good luck with that. Um, so, you know, we talked to Cody about race 21 and, and, and it was a lightning from his point of view, because, you know, when I was asking about, well, how do you go about selecting new technology, all these emerging technologies and really what I took out of that was, you know, they really sit down and create this um, user journey. So whoever's going to be doing this, what is that experience going to look like? And it really map that out. And I would encourage everyone, including vendors to start thinking about that user journey from a customer or end user's perspective. So in your team, do you get involved in the technology selection part? So, um, you know, okay, this is, I guess maybe if you can back it up before you select a technology and you have to select an asset, or maybe you do a technology first, I'm not sure, but how do you go about, and it's actually something I'm posting on LinkedIn today because I get a lot of questions about selecting an asset, which, you know, you, you literally have hundreds of thousands of pieces of equipment out there. A lot of things that spin in a circle drive on rocks and from between your fixed and mobile assets. How do you, Prioritize what asset gets your attention that then feeds into the asset health?
1: I've got to stay in my lane, Stephen tells me. <laughs> <laughs> so we look to the bad actor program and people that this is their full time job to understand what is the biggest priority. Um, and let them tell us what is the biggest need for the company as a whole and trying to stay aligned to it because it's really easy to go down a rabbit hole when you've got tons of data of, mm-hmm. you know, ah, I found this one thing and it was very interesting. So I'm going to spend the next three days trying to figure out what it was, but that may have only happened once and it might not happen again. So really aligning to what the broader maintenance program is telling us is the need.
2: Right. So I think it's a, combination of a lot of input from the, and, and i remember allison so I'm not sure if the podcast we did earlier is going to come out, but there was a takeaway I got from you was it's not just the, you know, the impact of, you know, lost production things like that. And, and I think obviously health and safety comes into it, but, um, the environment impact as well. Something I learned from you was, you know, yes, I can have a truck that still works, but it's leaking oil all over the ground to get to where it needs to be. And, you know, tech as a socially and environmentally responsible company that can have the same weight as actually stopping production right mm-hmm. and that was an interesting tidbit that i never considered and the reason i asked you that question of selecting the asset is um i've had a challenge recently where a customer wanted to put on some of our products and they picked the most critical asset which i said that's fantastic you're obviously criticality big impact good roi but what happened with that is because that asset was so critical i never considered the the um the person who owns that equipment so like the operation side was very hesitant. You're not putting, don't touch this thing, don't even put any your sensors I'm like, They're just strapping on the outside, it's good. Like, no, don't touch it. We couldn't have access to it because it was so critical. So it actually got me thinking about other considerations when selecting an asset of, do you have sponsorship? Do you have access to the equipment? All these other things that I've never even considered before. So it sounds like you're kind of tackling that at the front by getting multiple parties involved to make sure. And they're coming to you saying, we want you guys to monitor this asset because of this.
1: Yeah, and we're trying to also use that as a filter for not everything you solve with data. So, you know, we don't just get all of the problems, but trying to just take the problems that asset health is a good fit for. Um, and, you know, we're probably not to the point where those uh, relationship pieces are coming in, but hopefully we'll get there one day.
2: And then let's just stop on that. I'm going to write these down on a sticky note. So stay in your lane and not every problem gets solved with data. So true. Yep. So true. <laughs> So, you know, with a collaboration, someone comes to you and says, "Hey, we want to bring this asset on board into the asset monitoring. What happens next? Do you get into, again, what are we monitoring? Do you start with just monitoring the, the data you have, or do you start saying, hey, well, what pro-, I guess you already answered this earlier, was you start to look at what the most common failure history was and start to address that. So do, do, is there any formal process of once an asset's onboarded, so we, we just collect the data we have, we go through a process to see if we have temperature on there and we can set a temperature alarm, or wh- how do you start once you have that asset?
1: So I'll even go a little bit farther back of, sometimes I get requests of like, we'd like to start monitoring this asset and I'll question them of why, like, what do you think monitoring is gonna do? Um, and they'll say, wow, it's an important piece of equipment and it's got bad, you know, bad availability. And I said, you know, what do you think monitoring the sensors on this asset is actually going to do because a lot of people will they just think of it as broadly of like ah well you connect to what's there and you'll solve all the world's problems um and i push back on that idea a lot some assets don't come with many sensors installed some assets you know the issues that they're seeing are just not something we're going to be able to resolve with asset health um and so i start there of like some things I've actively fought against bringing into the asset health program because I I know we can't meet the expectations that they have. Um, So either bringing those expectations in line or just not doing it. Um, But once we do have a new asset, um, it actually is a little bit overwhelming to to start and figure out where to start. Um, But that comes back to just, you know, what have we historically seen Or what do we see on similar assets that we can start with and just implementing some of those baseline thresholds of like, okay, we have three hours of data. It looks like temperature is always above 60 or below 60, whatever the number is. Let's just stick an alarm there and, and we'll start, we'll start easy and going through that same iterative process that we've done with the program as a whole, always start really basic, never try to jump too far into understanding failure modes that you have no data on.
2: Right. Think big, start small scale fast right that's that's really what it what it what it comes down to
1: exactly
0: so we are getting a little bit short on time um before we close out there is there any anything you want to close out there on on allison is there anything specific you really want uh like a key takeaway or anything for anybody kind of going down this road we talked about a few different roads here but uh, for for anybody that's in this asset health monitoring space and the centralization of it is there is there anything you want to want to make sure that they can take away?
1: Yeah, so I, I guess the, the point that I always try to remind people of that I'll, I'll, I'll repeat here is having data and having machine learning are about magic wands um, and knowing when to bring in support for those areas and when to use them and when they're going to be valuable um, is something that we should be doing a better education when it comes to our upper management on and even our middle management so that we can actually work in the right areas Because getting sensors and getting machine learning don't solve all our problems. So that's, that's the one reminder that I'll give everyone.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's a fantastic reminder. Now, is there, is there any plugs or anything you want to make?
1: I, I'll shout out to an organization that I'm a big fan of. So I, uh, Girls Who Code is something that I, you know, one of the things that I really spend a lot of time on outside of work is getting women into STEM. Um, and for me, it was learning how to code at a really young age. I think I was 12 or 13 when I started learning how to code in HTML in MySpace. Um, so that's something that I, I really, MySpace. yeah, <laughs> dating myself a little bit. Mm. Um, but uh, it's something that I uh, really encourage other people. So, you know, If you're ever looking to support an organization, Girls Who Code is one that I'm a really big believer in.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And if people want to get a hold of you, um, what is going to be the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah, my LinkedIn is going to be the best place um, my contact information is there.
0: And we'll put the links to, to your plug there, Girls Who Code, and your LinkedIn on the podcast description. So you can check that out in there. Thanks, Allison, for joining us today, and thanks, Blair, for for joining joining my section of the show. It's always great to have you have you quiz uh, quiz the guests as well with me, and uh, I think in this one it's definitely yeah wouldn't it have was, been the same episode without you.
2: I think <laughs> I think for the rest of the year we just have Allison on every show. Wow. Um, so and, and, and then so, and I'll tell you what, Allison is is even the last one I took something away, which was. Um, which you already talked about. Um, But there was a point I I could go down further, which was, um, you know, when someone's bringing a new asset on, you ask, what are you trying to solve? So start with the end in mind. And that's something I learned too late. And it sounds like you got a good grasp on that is, well, what do you, what are you trying to solve? Right. Um, There's Paul Dose that taught me, uh, what decision are you going to make from this outcome? Right, focus on decision, and then work your way backwards to what are we going to do? What data? What what he describes? Which knowledge? Which information? Which data do you need to make that better informed decision? Um, so, I really look forward to reading your book soon. So, I'm sure you're going to write one. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: That's well, great. thanks for having me.
0: Thanks everybody for listening. Really appreciate our audience and really appreciate our sponsor, Star West Petroleum. If you want to hear more from Allison, we've got a special bonus episode coming out later this week, so stay tuned.